you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to, to look in two different places. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter number 4, so if you can find Genesis 4, and uh, we'll start there. We'll hold your place in Psalm chapter 13, if you would mind finding those two spots. If you don't have a Bible, if you have a device, I'd encourage you to, to have that out to be able to look at the words. And then we're going to end in uh, Romans chapter 8 today, so we'll use those three. May I ask before we get started, are you all comfortable as far as temperature goes? Anybody warm? Is anybody cold? How many of you are comfortably perfect? Awesome. All right, good. All right. Well, we'll heat it up a little bit in here. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. Well, we've taken the last four Sundays, not counting last Sunday when we were outdoors, and this beautiful group of ladies was sitting right in front of me out there, but you were all huddled up like this. And uh, that was not an easy thing to, uh, to try to preach, seeing a, a group of ladies who were shivering cold in that windy, chilly day, but it was a beautiful service. I really enjoyed being outside, and uh, we're going to plan to do that again uh, for Father's Day. Uh, this time, uh, instead of the men making a brunch, uh, for the ladies, we're going to have the ladies are going to make breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Um, Bill, thank you so much for all the, all the, Bill was in charge of the food last week, and he and Caden, his daughter there, they did a fabulous job in uh, taking care of all that. But uh, of the, of the minus Mother's Day, of the last four Sundays, we've taken time to open up the word of God each Sunday and see what Jesus says about the church. Uh, Jesus is the founder of the church. He's the one who purchased and redeemed the church with his own blood, and Jesus is the head of the church. Because of that, what he says about the church, how he defines and describes who the church should be and what the church should do, matters. Because as, as good of hearts as we all have, let's be honest, most of us have very different expectations different ideas, different thoughts about what the church should be to me and what I should be to the church. But really what we could do is we could put all of those aside as we open up the Word of God and we see what Jesus Christ says about the church. Because as we look in the Word of God, we're able to correct any of our wrong thinking like, oh, this is what I thought the church should be. Oh, I see. That's not necessarily what the church is called to be. Or we look at our church and we see, well, our church is not doing what jesus says our church needs to do and we need to correct the wrong application of the word of god to our church and, and we can also then come together in unity around the mission and the purpose of the church if we all have the same and that's why we go to the word of god for that so the first of the biblical qualities that we're looking at within the word of god of what a church is the first one we looked at was was worship how do we view god what worth do we give to God? Not just on Sundays, but every day. Because the church is called to live for and to proclaim His glory. It's what the verses over my left shoulder say up here behind me on, on your right. It's, they say, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The church must see the glory of Jesus. Because as we see the worth of God, as we see the worth of God, then what we do is we are open to receiving the word of God. 
And as we receive the word of God, we receive it with joy and humility, realizing this worthy being has spoken to us. And so we receive it with joy and humility and obedience. Immediate, extravagant obedience. It's what we saw a couple of weeks ago when we were in Jeremiah chapter number 32. We saw a prophet whose worth of God was this. Ah, Lord God, from Jeremiah 32. Thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and thine outstretched arm. Nothing is impossible to thee. That was the worth Jeremiah lifted to God. And so when the word of God came to Jeremiah and told him to buy some land, looked at that week was, was absolutely, well, it's wasteful. It was, it was extravagant and it seemed unwise. But Jeremiah didn't try to take the word of God and try to make sense of it. He knew the worth of God. So the word of God came and he reacted with obedience. As a church, we must do the same. We've ascribed worth, and I want to say something, you know, Landon, when he, when he was up here and he shared his testimony and he said, I'm going to pray and then we'll start worship. Oh no. Now we were already in worship as he was proclaiming what God was doing in his heart. And we were able to worship together with him of what God was already doing. In fact, we could have come in if, if we would have taken time to open up the word of God in our homes this morning and, and see the truths of God. We could walk into this building, not for worship, but we could walk in in worship and just keep it going which is what we're doing we're opening up the word of god and we're worshiping him for who he is so we continue not just with a song but with the very words of god so we've looked at the worship and we've looked at the word and now we're going to move on to a third characteristic of the church but they're all intertwined and that's prayer prayer question for you is mount carmel a praying church Now, before you answer that, don't forget you're the church. So when we say is Mount Carmel praying church, the, the question that really should be asked, you should be asking yourself is not, is our church a praying church? Am I a praying member of this church? So I know many of you know this story of mine, but I spent 41 years in a large church outside of Chicago. It was a very big church, but it wasn't big to me because it was home. Every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and many Wednesday nights, the 4,000-seat auditorium was completely full. It was not a big church. It was just church. I had the opportunity to grow up there, to attend the Christian school, to graduate from Bible college, and then to uh, become on staff as the youth pastor of that church. And I felt like I knew my home church very, very well but when i was 29 years old had already become the youth pastor of the church one of my friends who was a layman he was actually a welder in the church he asked me if i would attend a time of prayer together with him in what's called the aaron and her ministry now i won't go into this except to explain who aaron and her are because many of you may not know in exodus chapter 17 there's a battle between israel's army and some enemy army and and for whatever reason, God had 
declared it that when Moses' hands were in the air, Israel's army would win the battle. But when Moses lowered his arms because they were tired, the enemy army would start to win the battle. And so two men, one named Aaron and one named Hur, came alongside Moses in Exodus 17. They took his arms and they held his arms up for him so that Israel would win the battle. Aaron and Hur coming alongside Moses. And so the church had this ministry called the Aaron and Her ministry, and I'd heard about it, but I had never been a part of it before. And so on that Sunday morning, he invited me. Again, I was 29 years old, and he invited me, and we went to the basement of the church. And I was, again, it was a big church, so some long, winding, dirty, dingy hallways. And we finally got to a place, and it was, there was a couple steps just like this, and it was, it was all just, just cement uh, floor, and, and, and the walls had been painted, but they were peeling off. It was just, just a dark, dingy, mildewy almost area. And he stopped, and, and he pointed like this and said, right there, that's, that's where the pulpit is. Right there's where the man of God is going to stand, and he's going to declare the word of God today to the people of God. And so we're going to pray. For the power of God. He handed me a small little carpet remnant and I enrolled it, not knowing why, but realizing soon it was so my knees wouldn't have to hurt on this cement floor. And he stayed, they, there's three guys down there. One was the welder friend, one was a carpenter, and one was a truck driver. And he looked at me and he said, Do you want to pray? And I was like, Actually, this is my first time down here. Would you mind if I just listened? And they said, Sure. So, one of the men took the Bible and began to open and, and, and read Jeremiah 33, 3. Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. And then we all went to our little areas of carpet and one of the men began to pray. And as he began to pray, I was like, wow. I've never heard anybody pray like that. He wasn't praying for himself and he wasn't praying for his family and all their needs and wants. He wasn't going down this long list of people who had sickness after sickness after sickness for healing. It was like he walked right into the throne of God and got right before him and said, God, you are amazing and awesome. We want the whole world to know about you and your glory. And so, God, would you take your power and would you place the Holy Spirit right into the pulpit of our pastor as he preaches the word of God and would it flow through the pews of the auditorium God would you put your glory on display and Lord if there's anybody in that auditorium who doesn't know you as their personal savior God would you make today the day that you draw them to yourself Father, if there's someone there and they've been wayward and they're away from you God would you return the prodigal back to the father Lord, if there's tired, if there's people who are tired and weary, God, would you allow them to have strength of yours? The strength that can fly the wings of an eagle as you promised us in Isaiah 40, 31. He got done praying, and then the next guy started praying. And my friend, the welder, he started praying. He prayed some promises back to God, and I was like, oh, I've never, in 29 years, I've never heard people pray like this. And I was embarrassed. I was the pastor amongst four men, a welder and a contract, uh, 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 the welder, a carpenter, and a truck driver. And all I was like, is, I don't know God the way these guys know God. We prayed about 40, I say we, they prayed about 45 minutes and it just went from one man to another, each of them taking five minutes or so. And they went around and after 45 minutes, I walked out in awe. 
the next month I returned to the Aaron and her ministry again, picked up my carpet remnant, and I was terrified because I knew these guys were going to hear me pray. I don't know how to pray like that. We opened up the Bible again to a scripture. They prayed. Our, we, the, they opened up the Bible to a scripture, and then we went to our prayer. We went to our, uh, where our carpets were and began to pray, and each of those men prayed, all three of them, and then it grew silent because it was my turn. And it stayed silent for quite a while because I, I couldn't pray. I was just weeping. And I was like, I'm so ashamed. And I'm so embarrassed. And I'm distraught. I can't even form a word. I listened to three men, like literally at the throne room of God, as if they knew him personally. And here's me. I remember what I squeaked out that morning, and I'm not like joking, it was a squeak. Like, <clears throat> I said, God, I've been in this church my entire life. For the first time, I've actually seen where the true power of this church is located. It's not in that pretty, beautiful auditorium where everybody looks nice and there's a big platform and there's spotlights on the people behind, up on the stage. Lord, that's not where your power is. Your power is down in this dingy little hallway. Because down here is where men are calling on the name of the Lord. And for the next 12 years, every second Sunday of the month, every second Sunday of the month, I went to that Aaron and her ministry, and I learned how to pray. Not pray for what I want. Not pray that God makes my life simple and easy. But to pray that he would be glorified in any way that he wanted to. In fact, I... I loved that ministry so much that I made a point that on my very last Sunday in Indiana before coming to be your pastor, my last service was spent under the pulpit praying for God to bring power on the man of God through the word of God for the people of God because I wanted him to be on display. I love to pray. I spend a, month, I spend a bunch of time up in the the Mount Zion Cemetery. I go there twice a week in the mornings just to, just to spend time with the Lord. Prayer is so intimately linked in the book of Acts, though, to the church. To the church's growth, to the church's expansion, to the church's influence. It all comes back down to prayer. 21 times in the book of Acts, you'll see the church coming together in prayer. I'm going to tell you, for us to be a biblical church, we must be a church that prays. But if you were to ask the average Christian, do you pray a lot? Do you pray a little? Or do you pray none at all? Most Christians would say, well, I pray a little. One preacher said about that, little praying might be worse than no praying. Because when we only pray a little... We're telling God we only need him a little. Like, I'll pray when I need something, 
But most of the time, I can get by without you, God. I don't need you. And no one would ever say that, but our, our lack of prayer would indicate that, that I pray when I need something that I can't take care of myself. And that's the only time that I pray. When I need God to do what I can't do. One of the most, one of the most moving prayers that you'll find in, in, in the New Testament is when Jesus walks to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I know many of you would know about that. He takes his 11 disciples with him and eight stay. And then he takes three, Peter, James, and John, a little bit further. And then he prays by himself. And, and if you know what takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane, all the disciples, they sleep. Which I've known that, and I'm sure you've known that. But I was re reading recently, and a, a man pointed out, he said, did you ever consider... That Peter fell asleep in the garden and that sleeping instead of praying took place between two very crucial moments in his life. One where Peter said, I will never deny you. And then right after that time in the garden, Peter denies Jesus. I'll never deny you sleeping instead of praying. Ending with denial. Where Jesus goes and he spends that time with, with the Father. And it's not an easy time. It's not like, Lord, just would you bless my dog and would you help this to happen? And he is like, Lord, Lord, let this cup pass from me. I know what you're asking me to do. You're going to turn your back on me as I take the sin of the world upon me. And that cup of wrath is going to be poured out on me. And I will turn to you and you won't be there for me for the first time in all of eternity. Lord, let that cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. As great drops of blood fall to the, to the ground... And then what happens after that time of prayer? Jesus stands up as the guards come and he walks right to the guards with calmness, with boldness, and with peace, knowing he's walking to his death, but with calmness. The disciples who have been sleeping run for their lives in fear. What a difference prayer can make. We all believe prayer is important. If so, then why don't we pray more? I'm sure there's multiple reasons, like we don't have the correct view of God, or we don't have the correct view of ourselves as we approach God, or we don't have the, the right view of, of the purpose of prayer. Sometimes we don't have the right expectation of what prayer should be, and it's, it's very possible that all of these simply stem from not understanding what prayer truly is. How would you describe prayer? Is it simply asking and receiving? That's all prayer is. How come I ask God for stuff and then I don't get it? Like, is he not listening to me? Do I have to pray a certain way? Do I have to use certain words? Like, how do I pray? That question there, how do I pray, is the exact question the disciples asked Jesus in Luke chapter 11. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. One scholar pointed out that Jesus, the greatest rabbi to ever walk the earth, that was the only time his disciples asked the rabbi to teach them anything. Lord, teach us how to pray. 
And next Sunday, we're going to walk through the, through the Lord's Prayer. Jesus' response to the, to, the, to the disciples, teach us to pray. We're going to walk through that next Sunday. But today, we're just going to concentrate on defining what prayer truly is. Because without the right understanding of prayer, we're going to regularly mistreat prayer, and we're going to grow frustrated with God when our expectations in prayer aren't met. So let me give you one of the best definitions of prayer that I've come across. Gary Millar said, prayer is calling on God to come through on his promised word. Prayer is calling on God to come through on his promised word. So you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter number four, right? So we're going we're gonna to look at the very first time we ever hear of men calling on God. Genesis chapter four and verse number 25. Genesis 4, verse 25. Here's what the Bible says. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, before we get into this and what it means, calling on the name of the Lord is more than just saying his name. They're not just saying his name, and they're not just asking, like, God, give me something. No, calling on the name of the Lord is calling on the nature of God to respond. We're calling on God to respond with faithfulness, with mercy, with love, by keeping his promise. It's the same thing that we, we, we get when we pick up our phone and dial 911. Why do we dial 911 instead of three other digits? Because there is a promise that if you dial 911 and you need help, you'll get it. Your house is on fire, dial 911. They'll send a fire truck. You, you're having a hard time breathing or you're sick, dial 911. They'll send an ambulance. You're having trouble in your home, dial 911. They'll send a police officer. Because there is a promise that when I dial 911, I will get help no matter my situation. But when, I, when, the answer, when the operator calls, I don't tell them how they need to respond. I simply tell them, I'm in I need help. And then I rely on the promise that when I call 911, I will receive the help I need based on the knowledge and experience of the one on the other end of the line. They're going to know who to send. The same is true when we call on God. We don't call on God and demand how, we, how he is to respond. We simply call on God and admit we need help. And then we rely on his nature of being a loving, merciful, faithful, compassionate, and grace-filled God who always keeps his promises. That's who's on the other end in prayer. And so in Genesis 4, what, what caused men to, to do that? What caused men to call on the name of the Lord? Well, if you think of what happened in Genesis so far, God creates the world, a perfect world. There's a perfect relationship between man and God, and then sin enters. Sin brings forth death. But God steps in in Genesis 3.15 and says, I will send through the seed of woman one to crush the head of the tempter, the head of the serpent. I'll deliver you, and it'll come through the seed of woman. Well, then Genesis 4 opens up with two babies being born, Cain and Abel. 
And really, Adam and Eve thought this was the answer to that promise. Oh, he said through the seed of woman, and Eve was a woman, and so here this must be the promise delivers, but Cain kills Abel, and so they realized neither one of those was the promise. And as you read Genesis 4, the world gets worse and more wicked, and there's more murder in Genesis 4 until we come to those two verses that we read where Cain and, and, and Eve, I'm sorry, where Adam and Eve have another son. His name is Seth, and Seth has a son. His name is Enoch, and, and it says, then men began to call in the name of the Lord, saying, God, you promised to send a deliverer through the seed of woman. Send him and deliver us. And that prayer continued all throughout the Old Testament. And God kept that promise. I mean, when the whole world turned to the point where there was every thought of an, an imagination of the man's heart was really wicked continually, and God says, I cannot allow this wickedness to continue. He's going to clean the entire earth, but he saves one man and one woman. Why save somebody instead of just starting over again? Because he had made a promise. He's going to come through on that promise. And then he gives us more understanding about that promise in Genesis chapter 12 when he comes to Abraham and says, through you, all the families of the world will be blessed. That's the promise that that child is going to come through Abraham's line. But Abraham's reaching near 100. His wife's reaching near 90. And they don't have a child yet. And Abraham's like, and Sarah's like, but I want to show you something that is so cool about Sarah. In Hebrews chapter 11, you don't need to turn there, I'll have it behind me. In Hebrews chapter 11, this is what it says about Sarah. 90 years old. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Oh, isn't that so cool? She just, I know this, he promised. He's faithful, it'll happen. And we see the same thing about Abraham. In Romans chapter 4, the, the, the chapter starts off this way. For, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So we know this is talking about Abraham. As we jump to the end of the chapter, verse 18, it says this. In hope, he believed against hope. He had hope even when all hope was gone. He still had hope. That he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So your offspring, So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb. Now get these next verses. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham is like, I, I know there's no hope, but I've got hope because I know my God, the promise that he's going to be able to do this. I'm convinced of it. Even when God tells Abraham to take this child that was born between him and, and, and Sarah and that, that baby Isaac is born and, and God tells Abraham when Isaac is grown, Go take him and offer him as a sacrifice. And we're like, what? What is that all about? It's the promised seed. How? Let me read you. I don't have it, but let me read Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises, he who had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So he's in the, in the process of offering up his only son, the one who, he's, this is the one who's going to fulfill the promises I gave you. This is what it says about Abraham. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. That's power. That, that is a belief that says, if I kill this boy, God had already promised that this child would be the one that would bring his promises to pass. If I kill him because he asked me to, he'll raise him from the dead. Wow. And then we get to this beautiful prayer of David, Psalm chapter 13, which I ask you to have your Bible open to Psalm chapter 13. And read the first four verses and pause. Will you forget me forever? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? What do you think the theme of the first two verses is? How long, God? Like, what? How long? Verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So picture this. David is on the run for his own life against King Saul. King Saul the king in charge of Israel is hunting down David. David is hiding in a cave and asking God, like, how long? How long are you going to leave this enemy over me? God, come on. And then David returns to the promise. Oh, wait, wait a second. I've been anointed to be the next king. Samuel anointed me to be the next king. And, and I don't know why God's doing this, but I, I know what my future is because it's been promised. And this is how David ends that same song. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. No, wait, David, you were just saying like, how long, how long, how long, how long? Now your heart's going to rejoice. What salvation? I don't know what salvation, but I know the character of my God and I know the promise. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. How does David flip the switch from saying, how long am I going to be here? How long is the guy going to be over me? To saying simply, I rejoice in what, you, what you're going to do. I don't know how you're going to save me, but I rejoice and I'm going to sing to you. Thank you for the way that you have dealt bountifully with me. How? The circumstances haven't changed. He simply reminded himself of the promises of God and of the character of the one who made the promise. Do I have to stop already? Hey. <laughs> I'm almost done, actually. One pastor made this statement. Many Christians treat prayer like medication. We use it when we need it, but once the illness is gone, we no longer need the medication. Do any of you have pill bottles at home that have a little bit left in the bottom? Because you took some medication, but then you started feeling better, so you don't need the pills anymore? That, that, is that how we treat prayer? I'll take it when I need it. 
But prayer's not meant to be the medication. Think of it this way. Prayer's meant to be the prescription. So I've gotten poison ivy a couple times since moving here. I go to the doctor, and um, the first time I went, they tried to give me some calamine lotion put on me and, and all that, and it didn't, didn't help. And so I went back a couple days later, like, this is just miserable, please. I need something else. So they gave me a steroid pack, something I had taken before. I went, took the steroid pack, boom, the, the poison ivy was dried up and almost gone in about three days. Next time I got poison ivy, I went to the doctor, different doctor, and that doctor said, well, let me try, and I was like, no, no, can you just write me a prescription for the steroid, because I know that worked last time? And she did, she wrote out the prescription and handed it to me, and I went out, and he asked me, as I'm walking out the doctor's office with that prescription in my hand, am I better? Well, not really, because like the itching is still there, the poison ivy is still there, but am I better? <laughs> I've got hope now. I've got hope that this will change my condition. You know what prayer is? Prayer is taking what God himself wrote and said, hey, I know that you're the greatest being there is. Come through on the word that you wrote. Okay? I trust you. See, prayer is, in prayer, we approach God. The most worthy, most powerful, most faithful being in the world whose very character is goodness and love. So you can't get any better. And we approach him with his own promises. You wrote it. Now, would you come through on your word? See, prayer's not just, well, who's sick? Let's, let's pray for them, and, and Lord, heal my illnesses, and Lord, make, make my life better, and Lord, take away this problem and give me a, a better job. No, no, prayer is calling on God to come through on his promised word. And so the next time you face an impossible situation, you run to Jeremiah 32 and you pull, pull it up to God and like, you are the one that said nothing is impossible to you. I didn't say it, you said it. And I know you, you're the most powerful God, most powerful being, and you keep your promises and you said nothing is impossible. And you remind God of what he already said. And we call on him to come through on his word. And we, we do it in Ephesians chapter 3 as these verses behind me said, like, you, you can even do more than I even ask or think. So here's what I'm asking and thinking. You can come through on something greater than that. And I know you can. And the next time it seems like, oh, this is a hopeless situation. Oh, you run to Romans 8. And you run to Ephesians 1 where it tells you that within you is the very Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And if there was ever a hopeless situation in the world, it was that the Son of God was lying dead in a tomb. But the Spirit of God raised him. That Spirit of God that raised Jesus, if you are a Christian, you, ha, that is a death-defying power that is available to you. The next time a loved one passes, you open up Psalm 23 and you run and you say, God, you said you'd be the shepherd who would walk with me through the valley of the shadow of death and that I would have no need to fear because you're with me. 
You run to John 14 where Jesus himself said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will receive you unto myself that where I am, you may be with me. And you remind yourself that your loved one is being fulfilled in that moment where Jesus is brought to his side. We run to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which reminds us we are to comfort one another with the words that one day he will bring us all back and we will meet him together in the air and be forever with the Lord. So what's prayer? Prayer is simply opening up this word. And as you find promises of God, you remind God of his promises. Okay, but pastor, wait a second. I have prayed these kinds of things before, and if God is the God of the impossible, how come I haven't received that? Oh, oh, oh wait, wait. Whose character is more right, yours or his? Whose goodness is more perfect, yours or his? Are we going to trust the one who is the most good and most perfect to also know when the right time is? Or are we going to make him do it on our timetable? Under our circumstances. So that we can be fulfilled. Oh, prayer is going to God and in one hand reminding him of exactly what he said and with the other hand saying, but I trust you completely. You are a God of the impossible. You can do anything. If you choose not, that doesn't change a thing because I trust you with everything. That's what prayer is. And so I, I would just like love to just, so what, so so I think that we need to regularly rehearse who God is and worship him. It starts with worship, right? And then we react as we read God's word, we react with obedience and, and we read God's word searching for his promises. And then we repeat the promises to God, praying with the belief that God will come through on his promised word. To him be glory in the church. So who do you think knows best how God can be glorified in this church? You or God? So we pray that. You want to be glorified in this church? You, Lord, you glorify yourself in this church. And since you're on the other end of the line, I trust your character and your nature to do it the best way possible. So I ask you to, to be in Romans 8, and we're going to finish by just reading the last couple of verses of Romans chapter 8. Because this is what I would suggest to you if you want something to do this week in prayer. I'm, I'm choosing Romans 8 not for any other reason than it's my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. I want to point out a couple of verses that I would love if you want to mark them and, you know, pray them back to God sometime. Verse 1, there's therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a problem. Do you ever feel condemned? Do you ever feel like guilt is just all over you? Remind yourself. It's what Jesus, right there. His word for us is there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because God sees me in Christ and he sees Christ as his perfect son, that's how he sees me. 
There's no con now, if you're not in Christ Jesus, you don't get to claim that. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Suffering? Has it been a difficult time for you? Hey, just remember, there will be a time where you will forget this suffering as the true glory of God is revealed in time to come. Not even worth being compared to. Doesn't make your suffering any less real, but in comparison to what awaits you in glory, you will forget this. Jump to verse 31. Uh, verse 28, sorry. Verse, verse 28. And we know, that though, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God, what are you doing? Hey, if you love God, if you're called according to his purpose, he works out all things together for his good. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I don't even know what to pray for. That's okay. Just start praying because the Spirit's going to intercede for you. It's going to be really good. You won't, you won't even understand what the Spirit's going to say, but he's going to intercede for you in your prayers. He's, he's up there in heaven. Verse 31. And let me just read through the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Oh, remind yourself of that. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Oh, what a promise. God didn't withhold his son from you. Why would he withhold anything from you if he could give you his most valuable possession, his son? What other good thing, would he, what other good thing is more, more valuable than that? Nothing. So he's given you what's most valuable. Why wouldn't he give you something even less valuable? Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Ha! The Spirit intercedes for us. The Son intercedes for us. This is good. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, we feel it, or distress, we know it, or persecution, yes, or famine, sometimes, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, mean what things? In tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us, not because of what we did, but through him. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, run to Romans 8. Pray those promises over God and say, I trust you. I don't feel the love. I don't I feel alone. I feel sad. I feel beaten down. Oh. Son, no. 
I remember the first person who said, neither death nor life can separate us from the love of Christ. You know what that means? In life, we know the love of Christ. In death, we go to the one who is love in Christ. We can't be separated from him, but in life or death. Isn't that awesome? Prayer is all about calling on God to come through on his promises. And as a church, that's what we need to do. But we need to know the word in order to do that. And we need to know the worth of God in order to call upon him.